hardest part for me anyway, personally, it's this um, nerve-wracking process of every little bit of the journey, there could be something that goes wrong that prevents us from doing what we set out to do and that we promised that we would do, and so... You would think that spending weeks in one of the coldest, most desolate landscapes on planet Earth, traveling hundreds of miles, that your hard work would be done. Well, think again. Because in this case, all of that was just the beginning. And the ultimate objective? Just a bit more complex than navigating the South Pole. It was all very focused on, on climate change. I mean, that's really what drives the work that I do at the core rather than the other way around. Mountain Meister is supported by Buff. They're seam-free tubes of technical fabric, and they can be worn in dozens, if not hundreds or maybe even thousands of ways. Right now, I'm utilizing it as a headband. It's nice, and I'm pretty sure it's elevating my podcast performance. If you want a buff for however you perform, go to buffusa.com. Use the code MEISTER, M-E-I-S-T-E-R, at checkout, 15% off. Also, before we get to the show, Meister fan Kutsia Hussein and I would like to congratulate a fellow Meister fan, a climber, and now a doctor, Matt Resinti. Congratulations on graduating medical school. Matt will be an emergency medicine resident in Brooklyn, New York. Matt, I hope to meet you one day, but I also hope that it has nothing to do with emergency medicine at that time. For the rest of you out there, if you would like to congratulate somebody you know for climbing, for medical school, or whatever else, go to our support page and buy the shout-out package. All right, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mountain Meister. Today with us, we welcome Parker Lioto. He's a polar explorer and an environmental campaigner at the ripe age of 15. He and his expedition partner, Doug Staup, attempted to reach the North Pole but fell 15 miles short. However, the following year, at 16 years of age, he made it, and again at age 17. At the age of 19, Parker and Doug completed the fastest coast-to-South Pole expedition of Antarctica, 350 miles in 18-ish days. Parker was also the youngest at the time, but not anymore. Parker, do you know the name of the person who beat you? Uh, I think his name was Lewis, uh, Lewis Clark, is it? You're right. Lewis, Lewis Clark. And I should clarify also, I, uh, at the time I was the youngest man, but, um, Sarah, I think Sarah McNair Landry was the youngest person, um, who a couple years before did, um, a coastal pole with her brother and her mother. Um, I think she was, she must've been. 18 or just uh just before turning 19 i think yep i think i saw that 18 wow so let's go back to lewis and clark because the name or sorry it's his name is lewis clark i wonder if his middle initial is n i don't know it's it's uh i've been following his sort of uh ambition for about a year i knew that he was going to do that expedition and i met him um i met him in southern Chile right before we went and did the expedition because um, mm-hmm. we were attempting it at the same time. But it's funny. I mean, he's already he, – he's an athlete. Um, I think he was 16. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's this really 
big um, guy who's who's clearly trained, and he also swam the English Channel. And uh, it's a very stark contrast to what I look like when I was 16, which is a scrawny kid. I had to learn how to do push-ups uh, to train for my trip. So um, he clearly is uh, knows more about what he's doing than I did at the time. <laughs> so how did you get into? You said you're a scrawny little kid. At what, yeah. when when did you have the desire to do this? Well, I actually got interested in this. Um, from the perspective of climate change, I was, I think, 12 or 13 when I started to get interested in environmental issues. And then I met uh, an explorer called Robert Swan, who um, doesn't really do big expeditions anymore, although I think he's planning one. But he was the first person to walk to both the North and South Poles. And um, I saw you know, a talk that he did. I met him in person. And at the time, you know, I w- he has this... So he has this um, mission to protect Antarctica and, and is very climate focused. But uh, at the time I was only, you know, 14 years old and, and for a 14 year old uh, to I think be exposed to a story like that, which is utterly captivating, which goes through hell and back. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you listen to a story, it's actually very inspiring. And, and for a 14 year old, it's captivating. And so I really wanted to meet him and I wanted to learn more and I wanted to see how I could um, be involved. And that's when I actually joined him on a trip to Antarctica when I was 14 in 2009, and we visited the base that he had built that was powered by renewable energy on the Antarctic Peninsula. And then it was after that that I, that I decided, okay, I want to do my own campaign uh, on climate change, and I want to do my own expedition to the North Pole. But, uh, but it really started with meeting this one guy. Did anything else happen in your childhood that made you so attracted to sustainability? Um, I think at the beginning it was just, you know, kind of a curiosity. Um, I, I think that this is kind of one of these issues that everybody is talking about, but is so complicated in reality that um, somebody who's 14 years old really has no hope of understanding the complexities of it. Hmm. And so what I was hearing a lot of was, this is something that's going to affect the next generation, you know, or think about the kids, things like that. Um, and I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what these changes were that people kept talking about. I didn't really understand the science. So I was really driven by a curiosity. You know, I was more interested in science than I wasn't really the kind of kid that would, um, read, uh, literature or anything like that. I was, I was kind of interested in science and I wanted to know more from a scientific perspective. But I guess at the same time, I was also kind of an outsider in high school. Um, I, I was an American in a British boarding school, didn't fit in very well. Um, I didn't have very good social skills. In fact, my social skills are really bad, and so I didn't have many friends. And I spent a lot of my time kind of exploring on my own, in a sense, the things that really interested me, and and um, this became one of those things. And so uh, that's how I started to spend a lot of time learning about this issue and, and became um, really interested in it. That's interesting. Now, from the polar exploration perspective, you're alone on the expeditions. Is that something that you like about these? Well, you know, I think my perspective, as it would inevitably um, change over the course of a few years, because this was a really, the ages of, you know, 14 to 19, if you think about it, are critical in a in a person's development and so my perspective changed a lot between the first trip I did and and the most recent one but i guess the the solitude was both a mental challenge and also provide a 
an opportunity to be at peace, I think. Um, one thing that I found very challenging was in high school was balancing these ambitions and these things that I was interested in uh, with the realities of just being a student and uh, being a high school student in, in a system that's very rigid that doesn't allow for um, really going beyond the the norm and uh, beyond the system. And my friends didn't really get it either. And so one thing that being alone or almost alone, you know, because I was with Doug, one thing that that it did grant me was kind of a sense of peace that I could be with myself and trusting that I, um, that I didn't have to worry about external distractions that I could just focus specifically on this one goal, um, and really put everything I had into achieving this one goal and, and not have to worry about other things. Hmm. Let's talk about Doug. Uh, for the listeners, you might recognize the name Doug Stalp, episode number two. He was the first guest we've ever had on this show. And, I think probably the most intense person. Um, Russell, who used to host this podcast, where we co-hosted it, we were just kind of overwhelmed with Doug and didn't know what to do with ourselves. We had a lot of trouble cutting him off because he can kind of just talk and talk and talk. We're going to play a little clip from uh, Doug's episode. Here's Doug. Well, it's definitely training. I mean, I live here at Squaw Valley, USA, and um, even, uh, when the, when the days are short in the fall, I'm got a headlamp on and I'm pulling tires to the top of squaw, you know, at 11 o'clock at night. I mean, and it goes back to the planning and preparation that leads to success. If you, um, you ha- have all your, uh, caloric, you need, you're burning 10,000 calories a day. Wow. So, uh, you need to, uh, eat at least 5,000 to 6,000 calories uh, a day to just to stay alive. So your muscles don't get eaten and the fat content, I have no body fat at, you know, halfway through this trip so uh it's crazy uh the amount it's like but it would be like you getting on a nordic track or or a uh, elliptical or treadmill and going for 14 hours um except i'm in minus 40 um and dealing with that and you have to eat and drink every hour and a half if you miss one of those eating and drinking periods uh it's a downward spiral so it's staying focused um and you know you actually tap into a place in your brain where you normally wouldn't um you do have introspective thought along the way but you're really focused on staying alive and staying safe and and for me not only myself i have to worry about the clients too so um i didn't know i'd be good at it but it's uh it's been an adventure and certainly um love doing it and i get do you remember the first time you met doug parker yeah i do rem- i do remember the first time <laughs> i met doug this is very interesting actually because because uh, I didn't meet him in person. This is this is going to sound ridiculous, but I didn't meet him in person until three days before the expedition to the North Pole that we first did together. Wow! Um, and that sounds almost irresponsible, but here's here's how uh, that developed. I had talked to him over the phone a long time before, and we communicated by Skype and phone regularly, uh, and we trained individually separately from each other, and we connected on all the important issues, but there were logistical constraints, which is that I am at school and it's not like college where I can kind of figure out on my own. I'm an adult, so I can go and, you know, travel and, you know, meet someone if I have to. This is in in a British boarding school. I can't leave really. Um, there, there's no way for me to go and meet him. And so the reality is I have to rely on, first of all, possibility of doing an expedition like this which in the grand scheme of things is not the you know biggest expedition that's ever been done, but it's but it for me was a huge step big. forward <laughs> at, when I was fifteen. 
And I had to rely on what other people had said of him at the beginning because I didn't know him at all. Um, and that was Robert Swan. That was uh, Ann Kershaw, who was this, was the CEO of the organization that Robert Swan ran, and, and other people as well, telling me that this is you know one of the most experienced, one of the most um, uh, reputable, respected explorers on the planet. And um, and it seemed like everything that he said really backed up others' belief in him when I first talked to him over the phone, and, and it really got me behind the idea of doing a, you know, a journey with him. And um, we communicated over the phone and it wasn't really certain that this would happen until only, you know, five months, I'd say before the actual trip or maybe six months, because at the end of the day, I, I had to go out and fundraise. So I, I knew that, you know, Doug was the person to do it with and I knew I had to train physically and all that way long before I had the money to do it. And so, um, for a long time, I was fundraising and 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 um, writing to companies, and it wasn't going to be totally certain that we would even be able to do this. Hmm. Um, but then, you know, he came to London uh, right before we went together to Norway and uh, and to start the the expedition together. But we had communicated, you know, digitally for a long, long time, and it, I felt like I knew him so well, even though I hadn't met him in person. Yeah, you know, you said it was kind of crazy at the beginning there, but for me especially, it's not crazy because the majority of people I've had on this show, I've literally never met in person. I just host <laughs> these Skype conversations, and I feel yeah. like I know them. So uh, not crazy to me, but I can imagine a lot of our listeners were kind of uh, not expecting that three days before you try to go to the North <laughs> Pole, you meet your guide. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was, this is a, at the time it was just a steep learning curve. I was 15, hadn't done anything before. And, and, uh, it, for me, it's just kind of remarkable that you can actually do something like this where you don't meet the guy, um, really in person, but feel like, feel like, uh, you know, your partner really, really well. Right, right. Um, yeah, and it's worked out, I guess. Uh, you've done a few with Doug. Uh, <laughs> most recently, Willis Resilience. We'll have some links about, that expedition on your page. Uh, it was part climate change research and part expedition. Let's talk about the the climate change component. What were you looking for? The research program was well thought through with a number of scientific advisors. Um, and what we were looking for was we were measuring the, the concentration in the snow of a radioactive form of hydrogen called tritium. And what this can tell us is um, effectively about new ways of dating samples of snow and ice more accurately back into the past, about 80 to 120 years. And uh, what we need to know in order to use this as a tool to date samples of snow and ice back into you know, a century into the past, what we need to know is how much of this tritium is being naturally deposited onto the snow every year. Um, and as it turns out, there uh, there is a you know a good body of research already on this, but um, it varies depending on where you are in Antarctica. It, it depends on where you are in the world, but but in Antarctica it varies with latitude. And what we wanted to do was to figure out how this varies with latitude. Hmm. And, have, and have you found anything yet? The the thing is, you know, this expedition. So this expedition was twenty thirteen. Uh, late twenty thirteen, we got back at you know New Year's hmm. Day, so it's been a year and a half. And uh, we were delayed quite a bit by an issue of um, very, very low concentration in some of the samples that were closer to the coast. 
um, which required a, an additional process that cost a lot more money than we had originally budgeted. And so that means the whole thing is just slowed down way, way slower than we had thought. And so we have about half the the samples analyzed for tritium. Most of them are, are analyzed for stable isotopes, which are the typical indicators of climatic change that we measure um, the ratios of oxygen and hydrogen you know, forms that, um, that can help us understand how the climate is changing. And I think we're going to be well positioned to make some conclusion, conclusions at some point. We do have a little bit of an indicator of the quality of the data based on the samples that have been analyzed. So we've been able to identify a seasonal cycle, for instance, which is a good indicator of the fact that we've actually got useful uh, samples. But I don't want to say that we have, you know, um, conclusions right now because that would be that would be premature. Yeah. The the hardest part of this whole thing is not waiting for the opportunity to analyze the samples. It's the nerve wracking for me anyway, personally, it's the, it's this, um, nerve wracking process of like every little bit of the journey, there could be something that goes wrong that prevents us from doing what we set out to do and that we promised that we would do. And so we came so far and, and we got just, we went through so many problems with getting permits uh, when the government shut down, all of our permits were lost. Mm. Um, we had to deal with all of that. When we got to Antarctica, all of our equipment was lost in a Chilean custom strike, um, all these things. And then we finally get to Antarctica. We take these samples um, in conditions that are that are pretty harsh, um, where it's very easy to give in to the temptation to not do it right. And um, already, I think, the, so far, the proudest moment has been, or the, the biggest relief, I think, has been, um, right at the end of the research, like before the, the trek, um, the on foot trek to the South Pole with Doug, which is when we had completed the sampling and when the sampling was done, uh, and we had all those in, you know, big Pelican cases on the truck. Um, and we didn't have to worry about that anymore. But now, uh, then the issue was that I, I was very nervous about was, are these going to be remotely any good quality? <laughs> or are we going to get anything out of this? And when, um, I hear back from, you know, the lab that actually it, the, the signs are encouraging and, and um, we could get something really good out of it, that's um, a big relief too. And I think once we get all of these samples analyzed and we have um, hopefully an indication that these results are publishable, that they can lead to some conclusions, um, that'll be a really big relief, I think. <laughs> well, it's funny because normally when we talk to the Meisters, once they reach the finish line or the summit, whatever their expedition was, uh, then it's over. And it, it almost seems like, well, on to the next one. Whereas in your case, uh, things are still left to be discovered, right? Um, and I guess that's because of this climate change component, which it sounds like now that was the point of this trip, not really the expedition. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was the whole thing. I mean, uh, it was all very focused on on climate change. I mean, that's really what drives the work that I do um, at the core, rather than the other way around. If that makes any sense, right? No, no, absolutely. So, and you are becoming this environmental campaigner. You're still in college, uh, one year left. You were telling me before the show. Yeah. Um, why is? I mean, obviously, we talk. It's a very complex issue. Uh, very heated political debate. Why, with all of the evidence that's out there, uh, people like you have presented, why is there still another group that so passionately disagrees? I guess this is like my problem with a lot of politics is like how yeah. can how can there be two so contrasted groups of people that 
disagree? Well, the thing about climate change is that it's it's a very very unique issue, and it at the at the root of it, what we're really saying when we say that we need to move away from fossil fuels and cut emissions and uh, move into a low carbon economy. At the end of the day, what this does is, you know, more so in the past than in, than in the present, but what this does is um, present a challenge to the fundamental driver of societal progress that we have always, always, always relied on. Um, fossil fuels have created extraordinary wealth and well-being and societal progress, but they're also outdated. Um, coal is, you know, a 250-year-old technology. It's not exactly, or a 300, I don't know how old coal is, but it's centuries old. Um, and the basic technology hasn't really changed that much. It's just, at the end of the day, um, we do need to move forward and we do need to uh, adapt to the realities that, that we have put ourselves in a position that requires fundamental change, but it is still a massive challenge to the way that society has functioned mm-hmm. um, and requires, I think, a, um, an acceptance of the severity of the challenge that we're facing, which is very difficult to do. And that brings me to another point, which is, um, as a concept, climate change is difficult to except because it's difficult to observe um, from a personal standpoint. And so if someone says the climate is changing and, and communities are being affected, people's lives are at risk, um, whole you know, uh, economies are, are under a lot of additional tension because of these risks that are emerging, um, and uh, the, the eventual picture that comes out, especially with the way that the, that the issue has been communicated in the past few decades, is one is sort of apocalyptic, um, mm-hmm. narratives, which you would think would work into scaring people into you know right. actually doing something about it, especially if it's accurate. But the problem is that people look at these apocalyptic narratives and they and they then they then they compare that to what they see around them. And uh, when you look out your window and there is not some monster about to bite your head off, um, and everything seems mostly okay most of the time. If you're an American, if you, um, in terms of the climate anyway, if you're an American, if you're moderately rich compared to the rest of the world, it's difficult to see how um, this is not exaggerated. Um, and then you get to the, to the suspicions over why am I being told that, that I need to change everything uh, or that we need to change everything about the way society functions when um, I don't see the threat immediately upon me. Right. Um, and so the reality is a lot more complicated in the end, but um, about how the, the, these these challenges and these changes are, are actually affecting Americans and, and people around the world. But it's just that the way that it's positioned as an issue um, makes it very difficult for people to see how things are changing around them, um, observe a gradual change over decades, observe the, the impacts of that, and then uh, translate that into how they place their votes, for example, or their dollars. Right, right, right. So, okay, so a couple of comments on that. First of all, we have a really difficult time evaluating accurately how we would feel in the future. So, 
for something that would benefit us down the road, we have a difficult time taking action now. Right. I guess that's that's why we have so much trouble saving for retirement, right? You have to put away money now, yeah. give up money now for some sort of future benefit. Also, weight loss, right? right. Like sacrifice eating something delicious now uh, for a future benefit later. So yeah, we have we have a tough time with that. Also, uh, there's this really interesting study. I'll put it on your uh, Meister profile page, Parker. Mm-hmm. So they did an experiment in California where they tried to encourage people to use um, air conditioners over – sorry, no, use fans over air conditioners, right? More energy efficient. Right. And they hung flyers on the doors of the homes in this residential community. Uh, and I guess for our listeners, while you listen to these next four options, try to picture which one would be the most meaningful to you, what would make you take action the most, and then we'll tell you what actually made people take action the most, because I think that's an important distinction here, that people don't always act on what they say they're going to act on. So doing an experiment like this actually proves what people will do. Anyway, so here are the four choices. One is that flyer says you can reduce your carbon impact by X percent per year, some sort of great number. By switching from an air conditioner to a fan, you're reducing your carbon impact this much. Option number two is that uh, X percent of your neighbors are already doing it. Like join, join your neighbors, start using a fan over air conditioning. Option number three is that you are saving X number of dollars per year by switching. And then option number four is save the world, the more altruistic approach. Help other people, reduce your carbon impact, you'll save lives. So with that, the most popular or at least the most effective, I should say, the most effective flyer hung on people's door was do what all your neighbors are doing. Neighbors, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's it's a matter of I think uh, th- it's actually interesting. I, I I read a similar type of um, assessment in a very recent book called Climate Shock, um, which was written by a friend um, who is the lead senior economist at at the um, Environmental Defense Fund, uh, and. He says that you know one of the the ways that people can actually um, behave more responsibly is pressure from people around them or from their communities. Um, it was a very it wasn't really a, an in depth thing, but it's something that I remember that maybe even was one or two sentences from his book. Um, but it's interesting, you know, a, a more sort of cynical way you can you can talk about this in terms of shaming the people around you into doing the right thing. Which does work. Um, people respond to consequences, uh, especially social consequences. And um, even though behavioral changes will have a small impact on uh, the amount of emissions reductions that we can achieve compared to technical changes on on a broad you know, societal level, like where we get our energy from, um, it's still these are still behavioral changes that need to happen that is, that are the right thing to do that we need to be doing on a daily basis, and that includes. You know, this is already pretty widespread now. But um, are you using the right kind of light bulbs? Are your air conditioning uh, units energy efficient? That kind of thing. And um, just taking the light bulb example, that's that's very easy. Is you can save yourself money. Um, so that's one way that I think people can um, can align themselves with the right kind of goals 
Um, and you can use this on a much larger scale with businesses and governments mm-hmm. um, trying to implement large-scale changes. But some of the, unfortunately, some of the best arguments end up being nothing to do with climate change whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's a, a, we could talk about this forever or, and people will for many, many years. Um, let's go to your gear recommendation. We'd like to get one from every person that comes on the show. Uh, you're a polar explorer. Do you do any other outdoors activities or do you keep it, uh, generally to polar exploring? <laughs> you know, um, it's funny cause, cause I originally did not get into this from the perspective of, I love the outdoors. It was more of a, uh, how can I, create a really effective right. climate campaign and then and then learn how to love the outdoors. So um, I think from that perspective, uh, I do sometimes do, you know, little trips and things like that. But, but uh, most of the time, um, I've kept it focused actually on how do I train for the next thing. And so in the run-up to the South Pole, um, it was a way to stay focused, I guess. But, but we did a couple of trips to Iceland. Um, and that was great. Uh, discovering Iceland was, was incredible. Um, but yeah, it's actually more of a matter for me of, um, I, I like to keep it focused on how is this going to be beneficial, which is kind of a, a, an, a not fun way of doing it, but it just ends up being, uh, people like have that. different types of fun. Yeah. I would say, honestly, this, uh, I'm starting to run marathons and oh, it yeah. seems like the running is turning into training for whatever the next marathon is. Uh, so yeah. I see what you're saying there. What about, do you have any uh, specific pieces of gear that you've just fallen in love with? Uh, it's funny. In Antarctica, we really had to rely on our gear to save us. Um, and a face mask, um, which you must have heard of, uh, called the Cold Avenger. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, after a few expeditions, we tried a lot of different things. I had a couple of different types of masks. One of the reasons the Cold Avenger is so great is one of the most annoying things ever on these expeditions is always the fact that you're, when you breathe onto your face mask, um, you get moisture on it mm. all the time. And as soon as, it, as, soon as the mask, um, which, ha- which is wet, leaves the, the, the warmth of your breath and your face, it freezes immediately in in this kind of, these kinds of temperatures, and then and that's basically every hour or hour and a half when we have to stop and eat and drink, uh, we would take off the mask and it would freeze immediately, and then I have to put it back on and it would cut my face and it'd be horrible, um, and it would be frozen solid and and uh, it would be impossible to you know velcro back onto the other side of the thing, and and um, I struggled for a couple of years with these, the Cold Avenger was great because when we were using it, it allowed, I think, a way for my face to remain relatively comfortable while I was doing everything I needed to do. Um, and, it, and, it, and it didn't stop me from streamlining my own sort of system for dealing with the conditions. That's the biggest factor is that like in these harsh conditions, you want to minimize friction, you want to minimize how difficult things are, how much of a pain things are. And uh, the Cold Avenger, I think, really changed that for me. In addition to the fact that it, you know, it's supposed to have benefits um, in terms of reducing the, the impact of the cold on your lungs. But mm. more importantly, you know, that's kind of a, 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 something you don't notice as much on a minute-by-minute basis that hopefully just adds benefit to you by the end of the trip. But um, I really did notice the, the effect of the comfort of the Cold Avenger, and that's something that I really, um, you know, noticed every minute of 
the day for our whole trip. Very good. For the listeners, find the Cold Avenger on Parker's Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. Last question for you, Parker, is who yep. you'd like to see or I guess, I guess hear as the next person on this show. I guess I have a couple of people who I'd say um, I've followed and who do inspire me, but I, I don't know if you've had them already on the show. Go ahead, shoot. I'll tell you. Um, Yuli Steck. I've had Yuli, yeah. Uh, Alex Honnold. Not have Alex Honnold yet. He's, you know, somebody that, that, um, the kind of athlete that's absolutely remarkable. And it's just so fascinating to see the kinds of things that he does. Same thing with, uh, with, uh, Yuli Steck as well, which is just a very new approach, I think, or a very, uh, innovative approach to, to their kinds of journeys. And, and what's interesting is that it, from my perspective, it, it looks, so clean and so they make the, they make they make it look so easy it's it's ridiculous i don't know how they how they do it but but anyway those are the two people that i would say um uh would be interesting to have on the show i guess you've already had Julius tech yeah well you can listen to it episode one mm, i'll have to get back to you on the number i'm going to say 118 but i'm not sure but for the listeners keep an ear out for alex honnold on a future episode parker leoto thanks so much for joining us today thank you so much for having me for the listeners, check out highlights of today's episode on our website, mtnmeister.com. Thanks, Parker. Thank you. That was Parker Leoto, environmental campaigner and a polar explorer at times. Thanks, Parker, for joining. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you'd like to support the podcast, which I think you should, go to our support page on our website. One option is to buy me a beer. This actually won't be used toward beer. It'll go toward the business expenses, like what it costs to deliver this to you. Also, thanks to our supporter for this episode, it's Buff. For 15% off of your purchase, use the code MEISTER, M-E-I-S-T-E-R, at checkout. They're super comfortable. I'm wearing one around my neck right now silky smooth just like my voice i hope you enjoyed listening to it thanks again another episode of mountain meister enjoy doing whatever you do while you listen and until the next time you hear that silky smooth voice i'm ben shank thanks for listening to mountain meister 